Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. What if you could invest in the stock market, but not risk losing money? Yes, yes, your alarm bells should be ringing. But that's exactly what some new funds claim to offer. We take a hard look at structured products and buffer ETFs to ask if they really make sense for investors. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is Monte Carlo simulation? All right, let's get into it. So I feel if we're going to talk about structured products and Monte Carlo simulations today, Roman, we should start with a warning. This podcast episode may contain nerds. (laughs) That's always a guarantee. Yes, it is. At least one nerd. (laughs) So some people might not be familiar with these things because they are a little bit esoteric. So what are structured products just to get us started? Well, essentially, it's just a way of buying a package of things And this is going to sound very general and waffly, but it's packaged up in such a way that you don't see the internal complexity, but usually it provides some kind of guarantees for return. And that's done with derivatives and all of that complexity is hidden inside the product. So you don't see the complexity. You just see this really high promise of return usually. Yeah. So the ones you usually see advertised kind of cook up a nice story to tell to investors, don't they? They might say something like, you can have the return of the S&P 500 up to a cap of 15% over two years, for example. And we're going to promise you that you won't lose money. So it seems like it's just an incredible thing. You've got equity upside, you've got almost no downside. They say there won't be any downside. And it does seem a little bit too good to be true. It seems a lot like a free lunch, which <laughs> is not a thing that exists in investing, we're always told. The thing is, I'm in two minds about structured products because I absolutely love them. I knew you would. That's why I chose the subject matter. (laughs) (laughs) But they're made by structurers and it was kind of the dream job. I always fancied myself as being a structurer one day. I thought, you know, if I had my dream job at the bank, although the reality, I suspect, wouldn't have been quite as rosy. But essentially, your job is to look at what the clients want. The clients being us the investors. Usually this is for high net worth clients that you'd create structured products. Yes, us, Roman. That's what I said. (laughs) (laughs) But recently it seems they've been marketing them in ETFs, exchange traded products, which anybody can buy. And so that's why there's been lots of interest in them recently, I think. There have been more questions on our chat channel, for example. So I feel we should really get into the nuts and bolts here. Can you give us an example of one and how it works? just so we understand the concept a bit better. Now, the ones which have been popular recently have been something called a principal protected note. And the idea here is that you have, as you described, some kind of index. It'll usually be a stock index, could be anything. And then you say you won't make a loss, but over the course of the next one year, two years, three years, five years, will give you no loss combined with potential upside of X percent. And it's always for a fixed term, is it? It is for a fixed term and it's structured in such a way that it's usually wrapped up as a note. Then effectively, it's just a bond issued by the issuing company, which is usually an investment bank. So when you say note, does that mean it's basically just a promise they're making you that we're going to give you this return? Trust us that it's going to work. It's exactly that. And from the point of view of the bank, it's pretty cheap funding because you're giving them cash. They're doing something with it. 
they don't take exposure for the underlying crazy stuff which is inside it. They'll be hedging that. But what they do get is money onto their balance sheet and usually some trading fees. So if you say it's really cheap funding for the bank, immediately that makes me think it must be expensive for us in some way. Well, not really. I think from the point of view of the bank, it's cheap capital. They've got the capital through the door. The way we pay for it is via the fees that we're charged for the structured product, but also any kind of trading fees which it generates for the bank itself. So let's go back to that example you talked about, the principal protection structured note. So how does that actually work? What's the investment bank actually doing there when we hand over our $100? Well, this is where the fund begins, right? So let's say it's just $100 and it's just to keep the numbers simple. If you give me $100, I could say, well, I can guarantee you that $100 back in a year's time. But let's say that you've got a one-year US Treasury, which you can buy for $95. The face value of that's going to be 100 So you give me 95 today. I buy the one-year US Treasury. It matures in one year's time to give me $100. So there we go. There's your guaranteed return. Is that because the yield on the Treasury is around 5%? Yeah. So if the yield is 5%, you pay $95 for it today, you get $100 at maturity. Roughly. Yeah. But that means, and here the fun starts, I've got my $5 to play with. And you might be thinking, well, there's not much you can buy with $5. But what you can do is you can buy call options because options are usually much cheaper than the thing they buy. So let's say you buy call options on the S&P 500. Well, if you buy $5 of call options, That gives you unlimited upside on the S&P 500 above some strike price. And if the strike price is set to the value of the S&P today, then there's your 100% guarantee on the S&P. So there you are. That's your structured product. And you're going to get $100 back in a year's time and all of the upside on the S&P 500. But why are we paying an investment bank to do this for us? Why couldn't we just buy a treasury ourselves and place a gamble with a small amount of money on an option? Well, you can, and often the payoff will be more complicated than that, and the underlying index could be something which isn't usually available to retail investors. But surely, yes, you can do this yourself. You can buy a one-year treasury, you can buy a call option on the S&P, and you'll usually pay more in terms of bid and offer spread than the investment bank will. So you could claim that by buying this from the investment bank, you'll get more efficient trading. I'm assuming we're also going to be paying a fair whack in fees. Well, there are all sorts of ways you can hide fees inside these things. And generally, when it gets more complex, there's more ability to hide fees. And I mentioned the fact that they could generate fees for their trading desk. You don't know what bid and offer price you're going to get for that call option for the S&P. You've just got to trust the bank that it'll get a reasonable price. Also, One thing we didn't mention was the dividend on the S&P 500, which is usually quite measly, but still, you know, that's 2%, which sort of wasn't mentioned. If you look in the small print, it's probably mentioned, but that's effectively a way to generate revenue for the bank if they don't mention it. What do you mean? They're not going to pay us the dividend. They're just going to give us the price return, not the total return. Yeah, that's right. Those sneaky bastards. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes it'll be a total return one. But it really does pay to look at what the benefits are of holding the underlying. Yeah, well, that's a 2% fee right there. (laughs) 
Effectively, though, isn't it? If they're keeping the dividends, yeah, you say disguised fees, there you go. And the other thing they don't mention is it's not real return, because obviously what you think about is nominal returns. So even if you get your 100 back in a year's time, with inflation at 8%, you're going to have a real negative return. So there are all sorts of things to think about here. What's the real return? What's the cost of doing it yourself? What's happening to the dividend and any benefits of carry? In other words, the benefits of holding the underlying stuff that's inside the structured product, which may not be passed on to you. And of course, there'll be all sorts of fine print in the structured note, which effectively says, if something absolutely awful happens, tough luck. Well, we'll come on to that in a bit. But I think the main reason investors are seduced by products like this is that downside protection. It's kind of like an insurance product, isn't it? It's playing to that bias that investors have that, oh, there's a stock market crash coming. I'm really nervous about that, but I do want exposure to the stock market because I know in my mind that's the rational thing to do. It's just my gut is telling me the market's going to crash. And the problem is that investors generally overestimate the chance of a market crash. If you look at any surveys about this, the probability people assign to a market crash, you know, we're talking 30% plus drop, is actually quite high. Whereas in reality, it happens, you know, once every 10 years or whatever. 2% of the time. Yeah. But from the point of view of marketing, this is an absolute dream. So let's say you've got a customer that comes through the door. And if you run a wealth management outfit, you'll know that client really well. And you can basically classify people into three groups, people who are scared, people who are greedy, and people who are cheap. I can be all three of those easily. (laughs) (laughs) Craft me the perfect structured note, Romin. So the, the thing is, I mean, it just depends on the particular client. You know, there'll be various shades of those three things. I know what you mean, because basically here you're trading what upside you can promise them versus how much downside protection. Because it's not always you're not going to lose any money. Sometimes a note will say you won't lose anything beyond 10%. Or it might say the first 10% of losses you won't feel, but anything beyond that you'll feel. There's all sorts of different ways they can structure these things to play to your biases. Oh gosh, yes. I mean, with the options, you can really do anything you want. So let's say you want to make it cheaper. There are loads of ways to do that. One of them is to say, well, you had to buy this call option, which would be struck at the current price of the S&P. Usually that's pretty expensive. If you lower the price of the call option, then you don't have 100% guarantee anymore. And people don't like that. So if they're really scared, what you could say is I'm going to sell the upside. And that way you get the kind of capped upside for some of these structures. And by selling that upside call option, it makes the overall strategy cheaper. So that's one way you can do it. And people who are really scared and not particularly greedy would be willing to give up that upside. Another way to do it is to have something like an exotic option where you have a kick out for the option itself. Oh, I love the sound of all of this. Oh, it's beautiful. If you have one of these kick out options, you have the option until it goes a certain distance out of the money. So let's say that the S&P falls by, I don't know, 20% over the course of the lifetime of the note. At that point, you lose all the upside. Or let's say that you've bought downside protection. If it falls more than a certain percentage, you lose that downside protection. That sounds terrible, though. That's like the worst case scenario. It suddenly becomes really bad. Well, the structure will choose it, the size of the downside knockout or kick out on the upside. They'll choose it such that it's not going to be very likely to get hit. 
But if it does get hit, clearly it's going to really screw you up. This sounds a lot like gambling. I think we've strayed from investing to gambling. Gambling. No worries. There you can have digital options. So you can say, okay, if you think that the S&P is going to be above this level in a year's time, you get a massive payoff. What do you mean by this level? Like a specific number? A specific number. If it's less than that, then you get nothing. Now, There are certain clients in particular regions which absolutely love those digital options, which are inside the structured note. So it's either a big win or it's nothing. Or let's say that you think the value of sterling versus the dollar is going to stay in a certain range over the next year. And if at the end of the year it's within that range, you get the big payout. If it's outside the range, you don't. So that's a combination of a digital call and a digital put. These are such weird things, to my mind, something I would never even considered buying, that I'm surprised that they can be sold to retail investors. Like you talked about, traditionally, it's high net worth individuals who have bought these things. But now it's becoming more and more popular. And the reason I chose it for this episode is because I've received at least five emails from people about a specific fund that has just launched in the US. And this is the first ETF with 100% protection against losses, is what it claims. And it's based on the S&P 500. It's the Innovator US Equity Defined Protection ETF. So previously, there have been ETFs that offer this downside protection, but they've not offered 100% protection. So Innovator's previous flagship, the Power Buffer range, aims to protect investors against the first 15% of market losses. But then beyond that, you're starting to lose money. So this new ETF from Innovator has the ticker TJUL. And as I said, the underlying index is the S&P 500, and it uses put and call options to attempt to protect against any market losses from the initial price the ETF is launched for over a two-year period. And it's promising all the upside of the S&P 500 up to a cap of 16.62% over a two-year period. You are forgoing the dividends, and you are going to be paying a high fee of 0.79% expense ratio. And I imagine there's other fees which you don't necessarily see in that. But if we think about the environment in which these products are really easier to structure, it's when volatility is low, because that makes the options cheap. And volatility in the US currently is very, very low. And if you look at the interest rate world, you want interest rates to be high, because then you can buy your T-bill or your government treasury for a very low price relative to its redemption value. So you get more wiggle room in terms of how much you can afford in order to buy the option. So you're saying it's a pretty good environment right now for them to be launching this ETF? Perfect. At least it's cheap for them to make. High interest rates, low volatility, cheap options and big returns at the risk-free end of things. And I can see why we've had a lot of people talking to us about it, because the promise is exactly crafted to play to people's biases, especially in the kind of market we're in now where things in the US maybe look a little bit expensive. They think, oh, an upside of 16% over two years is pretty nice, and I'm not going to lose money in nominal terms. But that buffer is calculated before fees, and you're giving up the dividends, and most likely there won't be a market crash. And this is the problem, which is that you're essentially crafting something for an eventuality that probably won't occur. But even if it does, it's recoverable from, and you're going to be paying fees whatever happens. So I suspect that for most people, 
they'd be better off keeping away from these products and simply sticking with the market, just keeping a cheap exposure to these underlying indices. I mean, I think that's without question, right? If it wasn't profitable for these fund managers to be launching these things, they wouldn't be doing it right. There was a good episode of the Rational Reminder podcast recently with Ben Felix. And there's a quote from that I'd like to read. So he says, In economic theory, complexity may be used by firms to shroud some aspects of their products in order to exploit uninformed consumers. Or firms may strategically create complexity to reduce the proportion of investors who are informed. Which is a general principle, I think. If you don't understand the product and you don't know where the fees are, you don't know what they're buying, you don't understand it, well, just don't buy it because the chances are that you're going to be better off not being exposed to something where they can rip you off. If you don't know who the patsy is, you're the patsy. And there certainly is evidence that these structured products do underperform significantly. So there was a 2011 study called The Dark Side of Financial Innovation. Now, you can probably guess what its findings were just from the title of the paper. (laughs) But it basically found that the price of structured products on average is almost 8% greater than their fair market values would imply using option pricing methods. Now, maybe you can explain that better than me, but it sounds like there's a big margin built in rather than if you did this yourself. Yeah, I think that's it. But if you are going to get this kind of exposure, usually it won't be to your benefit. I mean, the conclusion here is that the mean expected return estimate on structured products is slightly below zero. Net of fees. And there was another study in 2021 called Engineering Lemons, which is a great (laughs) title. And again, you can probably work out what it's going to say. So it looked at 28,000 structured products and found that though they promise attractive yields, most products in the sample had negative expected returns. So buyer beware. Now, that's not to say these things never make sense. I think there are certain structured products which actually are pretty good ideas. But I think you've just got to be wary of all these things which we discussed. You know, read the fine print. And if you're the kind of person that glazes over when the explanation takes longer than 30 seconds, then clearly this is not for you. None of our listeners do that. Otherwise, they wouldn't get through an episode. (laughs) So when you say some of these things might make sense in some situations, what kind of thing are you talking about there? So not the principal protected stuff. I think that's probably a bad idea. Yield enhancement is when you sell options to generate higher income. And again, I think that's probably not a good idea. And then finally, we've got tax optimization products. Now, these are the ones which I think probably do make sense because this is not something you could easily do yourself. Essentially what these do, let's say you live in a jurisdiction where Capital gains is very heavily taxed, but income isn't. Well, what you'd like is a structured product which turns the capital gains into income. And that way, you pay less tax. Or if it's the other way around, you can turn the income into capital gains. And that way, you're not going to have to pay too much tax. So tax optimization is not something that you could do easily yourself, but which a structurer can. So that's a kind of tax arbitrage in a way, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) So it's not necessarily that the financial engineering itself is giving you a better return or a risk-adjusted return. It's that there's some quirk of legislation where you live and those clever people on Wall Street can help you get around the law. But there's always some quirk of legislation when it comes to tax. So there's always some kind of structure that you can create which produces a more efficient return. And I think those do make sense. 
the tax authorities may not like them, but you know, there's always one structurer who's one step ahead of the tax authorities. I guess there is risk there in the sense that it could retroactively be ruled illegal. Possible, but I don't know of a case where that's happened. I'd like to hear that, actually, if there is anyone listening who is kind of aware of that. Has one of these products ever kind of retrospectively been ruled to be illegal? And the other kind of structured product which might be interesting is one where you can't normally get exposure to the underlying asset. What kind of thing would that be? So if you wanted, say, some market which the bank has exposure to but you don't, like some foreign market which they sit on the exchange for, you can wrap that up as a structured product. And let's say that you don't want the currency risk of that foreign investment. So let's say you wanted a particular Malaysian basket of stocks, but you didn't want the currency risk. This is something they could do quite efficiently. As long as you're aware of the pricing, and I think this is the key point, if you're a high net worth investor, you've probably got a family office. And that family office has quants, and the quants can work out how much the options should be worth and how much the structured product should be trading for. Yeah. So if you've got that knowledge up front, then look, they can't rip you off. But who has that? Retail investors are not going to have those kind of resources. And quants aren't working for you for free either. Of course not, no. For a family office, they'd be paid a good salary, but we can't afford those quants. So, you know, I don't think for most people it would make sense to go for one of these really esoteric products, which give you exposure to something very complex. One argument I've heard in favour of structured products is that though they might be playing up to people's biases, which lead them astray, there might be good behavioural reasons people choose to hold these things, even if on a rational, risk-adjusted basis, they don't make mathematical sense. So there was a good article in the Financial Times recently, and it quoted the chief investment officer of Innovator Capital Management, who launched that ETF we talked about. So Graham Day said, trillions of dollars have come into the economy as a result of the COVID stimulus programs, but are sitting on the sidelines in cash, in money market funds and bank deposits. If an advisor has clients who are overweight cash or short-term bonds... If they can dip their toe into the market and still have that 100% buffer in place, there is a market for that product. So I think he's kind of acknowledging that these things are generally going to underperform just holding the index, but they might, you know, hold someone's hand and lead them into the shallow waters. Yeah, they can help you climb the wall of worry. And if that happens, then it would kind of make sense. I think the other way in which they kind of help is they have a fixed term for which you have to lock up your investment. So let's say that's five years. Immediately, that forces you to stick with that investment for that period of time. Because usually you can sell these back to the bank, but usually the bid-offer spread is huge because they're very illiquid. So I think that kind of keeps you on track and keeps you exposed to markets, which for most of us is where you want to be. I mean, that's one point we should have mentioned about these ETF-structured products, is that they continue to trade throughout their two-year period or whatever it might be. And it's not obvious what the deal is if you're buying midway through, right? Because the price will have moved from the start. So let's say it's the S&P 500 and you've got 16% capped upside and full downside protection. If the S&P has rallied during the term and is now up 14%, you're very close to that cap. And if you buy at that point, all you've really got is downside, right? And that increases the complexity. You've got to look at the last reset period in order to work out when the call option is going to reset at the new higher rate. 
so that your upside cap is as big as possible. The ideal time to buy one of these would be when it's just reset and it's just bought a new call option and sold the upside call option. Are there other risks involved here that we haven't covered? So we kind of hinted earlier at the potential for counterparty risk and credit risk, because if you're buying a traditional structured note, you're making a bet with a bank. But what if the bank goes bankrupt? There are various ways of structuring them. If it's wrapped up as a note, then yes, it's just like an unsecured bond issued by the investment bank. So if the bank's credit risk deteriorates, what you'll notice is the value of the note starts to gradually fall. Interesting. And if the bank's about to go bust, you know, it would be <laughs> trading at zero or very close. Has this happened? It'd be trading at recovery value. Well, it happened with Lehman. You know, they were issuing structured notes and they went to zero. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Downside protection. <laughs> and this is the problem, right? Which is you have to pay attention to the legal structure, which is also wrapped around the product. And it's not just notes. I mean, you can structure it other ways. So, for example, one form is a structured certificate of deposit, and sometimes those come with deposit guarantees, you know, the FDIC guarantees. Sometimes they don't. So you really have to read the small print with these. And I think for this episode, much more than usual, we have to say this is not a recommendation. Well, I think we've been pretty clear we've not recommended any of this stuff. <laughs> well, just for our lawyer friends, I just thought I'd point that out. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when you go on the website for that TJUL ETF, and it explicitly says right near the top of the page, quote, there is no guarantee the fund will be successful in providing the sought after protection. And there was a thread about this on one of our chat channels where one of our users just summarized it by saying, hey, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of a two faced thing, isn't it? That you're promising downside protection. That's the whole point of the fund. But then right at the top of the factory, it says we're not actually guaranteeing that. But it's a little bit like reading the side effects when you take a medicine and you just read through this kind of litany of woes and things that could go wrong. And if you read the small print on one of these, you'd never buy them. I mean, this whole financial engineering structured product universe kind of reminds me of the Blaise Pascal quote. So he's a philosopher. And in 1654, he said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And I think maybe we adapt that to be all investor problems stem from their inability to sit patiently in an index fund. It's really hard to market them. You know, that's the problem. Whereas these things, oh, they must just fly off the shelves. But I guess you won't go far wrong if you don't break the rule you had earlier of don't invest in things you don't understand. And you've just got to be completely honest with yourself about whether you do understand it or not. I guess I was thinking the other day about this, and maybe it isn't so binary and simple as we make out. Because I don't think many investors could explain to you how a bond fund works. Yet, investing in a bond fund is kind of okay, right? Well, the bond fund is a portfolio of bonds. There isn't that much more to it. The maths is complex, potentially. If you wanted to work out the duration of that portfolio, it has to be PV weighted. It's not simple. But it is just a portfolio of bonds. And you can get the list of bonds. You can download the whole list, usually. Same for a stock fund. You can actually see what's in the fund. I would buy that more if everyone wasn't so surprised when their inflation-linked bond funds fell 30% in 2022. But that's not because they don't understand the wrapper. That's because they didn't understand the underlying asset. But by your rule, they shouldn't have bought it. That's true, I think. You know, if you didn't realise that you could make a big loss on these things, then clearly there was a problem there. 
Duration comes with a big risk. That's true whether it's wrapped in a structured product or whether it's not, or whether it's a single bond. And I think the point here of it not being binary is that most people don't fully understand any of this stuff. Even like cash, if you get a normal person to try and explain how the monetary system works and the issuance of currency, I don't think they're going to get very far. But it's like driving a car. You don't understand the workings of the car, but you understand the bits that matter. You know, if you put your foot on the accelerator, it's going to do this. If you turn the wheel, it'll do that. As long as they keep within the guidelines, the manufacturer of the car, that when you turn the wheel to the right, that's the way the car turns, then everything's fine. Similarly for structured products, I think as long as you understand that the important moving parts do what you expect, then everything is fine. But structured products are like Tesla promising full self-drive. And then <laughs> this car is not driving itself. <laughs> but I think my main issue with them is around the transparency of the fees and the costs and the fact that they can be sold to people who don't really understand what they do. I'm surprised that they've been able to market them so widely. Maybe that's why they just restricted it to these capital protection notes. I mean, they are getting more and more popular. Defined outcome ETFs, which is kind of what the category is called, they took in almost $11 billion in North America last year, which was up from just $4 billion the year before. And at the end of 2022, there were 170 of these buffer ETFs in the US with $21 billion in assets. And just over the last six months, that's grown to 190 with $28 billion in assets. So they seem to be gathering assets all the time. They are attractive to investors. They're very attractive to marketers too, I suspect. And maybe just to wrap up, I think I should mention that my mum got one of these through her post and she showed it to me. She said, Roman, look at this. I get this really high return on stocks and I just got this from Barclays. They're a good bank. And I said, yeah, okay, let me have a look at it. And it was one of these also callables, which there's no way you could price one of these things unless you could do Monte Carlo simulation. And we're so bad at working things out based on probabilities that we can't really judge the likelihood unless we do something complex like Monte Carlo. And, and so I think my mum, you know, she was just drawn in by the very high percentage that she saw, not realising that the probability of getting that's pretty low. Good job she's an expert in Monte Carlo simulation. <laughs> <laughs> now, we mentioned that this was discussed on one of our chat forums, this new ETF product. Well, if you want to discuss that or any other products that you invest in, why not do that as part of our online community? If you want to learn more about that, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what is Monte Carlo simulation? Now, Romin, I imagine you love a Monte Carlo simulation. I do, absolutely. And uh, the history of it comes straight out of the physics playbook. So originally, the reason why people came up with this, or at least this is how the story goes, is that people were storing barrels of uranium at the Los Alamos nuclear research facility. Oh, the Manhattan Project. Yep. And they noticed these barrels were getting very hot. <laughs> okay, not a good sign. <laughs> so simple question, how far apart do you store the barrels in order for them not to get really hot and cause a problem? And it turns out to solve that problem, you need to solve these really hard sums, these really hard integrals. So what people came up with was this method, which 
generates a set of random numbers. And based on those random numbers, it works out the value of these integrals. Now, you're probably thinking, how does this apply to finance? Well, what you can do is you can say, let's pretend that we're going to simulate the value of all the stocks in a portfolio over the next five years. Now, that won't necessarily be the path that the stocks follow. It's just one potential likely path. And then we do it again. We start off from today's values. We simulate another path. And then we do it again and again and again, maybe 10,000 times, maybe a million times. And that way you come up with a plausible set of futures. And in each of those futures, you work out what's the payoff for my portfolio or for my auto callable, which my mum bought. And that way you can work out what the value today is of that investment. And also what the potential losses are in future, what the potential upside is, anything you want. So you could see kind of the average expected return, the median, the distribution. Everything. All of the statistics you could ever want will kind of pop out of this simulation. But how do you know what values to feed into it? Do you know what I mean? If you're modelling stocks over five years and they're going to take different paths in each of your simulations, what are you basing that on? Is it historic data? Well, one way you can do it is called historic simulation. You could just say, I'll just take every day of returns from the past and I'll just throw a dice and I'll work out which day to sample from based on the throw of the dice. So one will be 342 days ago, another one will be 10 days ago. And then that way you just replay the past returns in future. Okay, so you're just jumbling up the order of the days. You just jumble up the past to produce the future. That's one way to do it, which sounds really stupid, but in in fact, it works really well. It works well, yeah. (laughs) Because it captures the correlations. Because you're using historic returns, that picks up the correlation between assets perfectly. What it doesn't pick up is things like regime shifts, where you've got periods of high vol and low vol. Because it's completely blind to macro conditions, right? Absolutely. So it just jumbles up things randomly. Another approach is to say, well, let's assume that returns follow a certain distribution. So it could be a normal distribution. That's not a good choice. What's a normal distribution? You just want me to say Mexican hat, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) The normal distribution is the sombrero, as you put it, the bell curve. It is the bell curve. Like symmetrical around a central point, right? Exactly. And in practice, real returns for real assets that you can buy have bigger extreme values and less small values. So by extending the tails, you can produce more realistic distributions. And there are various ways to do that. So is it basically saying they go extreme more often than you'd expect? Yeah. This is called parametric simulation. There are various tricks you can use to make those more realistic. But what I like about historic simulation is you don't have to make those weird assumptions or assume it's a certain distribution. And is this the kind of thing we, as normal, regular retail investors, can use when we're looking at modelling a portfolio or our retirement or whatever, one of these structured products? Yeah, I mean, we've got a tracker. One of our trackers on our website does exactly this. It does the kind of parametric simulation and works out what kind of level your portfolio could reach and the probability of reaching a certain level with your savings with all of the uncertainty built into it. And then when you're in drawdown, it works out the probability of you outliving your portfolio. That's very much the barrels are too close together. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> How often do you just sit around and play with a Monte Carlo sim just for fun? I do it quite often because people ask me about their portfolios and they're saying, look, do you think this is going to work? And we kind of talk through it during power hours. So they use them quite a lot. And I know for a fact that people play with this for hours because it's really addictive. Yeah. I mean, I've known you for a while now, and it seems that your main hobbies are gardening, Monte Carlo simulations, and tweeting at the Bank of England to fix their website. As far as I can see, <laughs> that's what you spend most of your time doing. Is it fixed? Let's just check it. <laughs> You've not checked today? No. Yay, it's still down. Have you tweeted at them today? No. It's terrible, isn't it? Well, it's a bit embarrassing. I mean, is there anything you want to say about Monte Carlo Sim before we finish? Well, there are certain things it doesn't capture. So let's say there's a systemic problem and the entire financial system collapses. Well, it's not going to capture that. It can only capture what's happened in the past. So it's always calibrated based on kind of benign periods of time. So the really extreme tail risks are invisible to the model. Yeah, I mean, most of these models won't capture that kind of force majeure extreme events. I remember when I was working in media at the start of COVID and we were scanning all of our thousands of contracts for the force majeure clauses. That was not a fun time <laughs> as television production was suspended across the world. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.